0: Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ sports and recreation organizations in the Washington DC area. I'm Laura. I'm the vice president of Team DC, and I've played and loved sports my whole life. I've played with Team DC member clubs, the DC Furies women's rugby club and rogue darts.
0: And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team D.C. and I'm a diehard sports fan. I played with many of the Team D.C. member clubs, including the D.C. Gay Flag Football League, Kara Bowling, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, and the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. I'm also a member of the D.C. Different Drummers, and I do a little bit of drag on the side.
1: We hope you enjoy this week's trip Under the
0: Bleachers. Welcome, everyone. Lauren Gabe here. It's November 22nd, and you're listening to Under the Bleachers. On this podcast, we take turns, and this week it's Laura's turn to choose our topics. For a discussion of all things queer, she chose Transgender Day of Remembrance. For our conversation of all things sports, we're talking about MLB Awards Week. And for our topic at the intersection of sports and queer, we're discussing a new framework for transgender and intersex athletes from the IOC. After that, we're going to share our interview with documentary filmmaker Liz Lindstrom.
1: First, an update on Team DC. On Wednesday, December 8th, Team DC is hosting a holiday party at Uproar from six to 8 PM. There will be food and a cash bar. We will also be conducting a winter clothing drive. So bring your lightly used winter clothes to donate. And if you donate two items, you will get a complimentary rail drink or Bud Light courtesy of Uproar. Team DC board elections will be held at the annual meeting in January and nominations are being accepted now. Positions up for election include Vice President, Secretary, Treasurer, Board Member for Scholarship, Board Member for Fundraising, Board Member for Communications, and Board Member in Charge of the Night Out Series. If you would like to nominate yourself or another person, or if you would like more information about any of these positions, please email less at teamdc.org. Be sure to follow Team DC and its member clubs on social media for more updates. Find Team DC on Facebook at Team DC LGBT and on Twitter and Instagram at Team DC Sports.
0: Laura and I will be bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com and in all your favorite podcast apps including Apple Podcast and Google Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And while you're at it, tell your friends to subscribe to Under the Bleachers for all the latest news at the intersection of sports and queer. Now, here's Laura with our first topic in this week's trip, Under the Bleachers.
1: All right, first up, my queer topic is Transgender Day of Remembrance. Saturday, November 20th was Transgender Day of Remembrance. Last week, the Human Rights Campaign Foundation released its report called An Epidemic of Violence, Fatal Violence Against Transgender and Gender Nonconforming People in the United States in 2021. This report honors the at least 46 transgender and gender non-conforming people killed in 2021 as of today and shines a light on data that HRC has continued to collect on the epidemic of violence. With 46 known deaths since January 1st, HRC has officially recorded more violent deaths of transgender and gender non-conforming people than any year since it began tracking this violence in 2013. Previously, the highest known number of fatal deaths of transgender and gender nonconforming people was in 2020 when HRC reported 44 people were violently killed throughout the calendar year. HRC found that since the start of this year, at least 46 transgender and gender nonconforming people have been killed in the US. Of those 46 victims, 29 were Black and eight were Latinx. Since January 2013, HRC has documented more than 250 transgender and gender nonconforming people who were victims of fatal violence. Two thirds of those known victims have been Black women, and nearly 60% of known fatalities have involved a firearm. This fatal violence affects trans and gender nonconforming people nationwide, with HRC and other advocates tracking cases of fatal violence across 113 cities and towns in 33 states, the district of Columbia and Puerto Rico. These disturbing numbers likely underreport deadly violence targeting transgender and gender and gender nonconforming people who may not be properly identified as transgender or gender nonconforming by police, media or other sources. The 46 known transgender and gender nonconforming people killed so far in 2021 are Tiana Alexander, Samuel Edmund Damian Valentin, Bianca Muffin Banks, Dominique Jackson, 50 Bands, Alexis Braxton, China Carrillo, siblings Jeffrey J.J. Bright and Jasmine Kennedy, Jenna Franks, Diamond Kyrie Sanders, Rayana Pardo, Jada Peterson, Dominique Luscious, Remy Fennel, Tiara Banks, Natalia Smut, Iris Santos, Tiffany Thomas, Harry Washington, DeHera Dialto, Whispering Wind Bear Spirit, Sophia Vasquez, Danica Danny Henson, Serenity Hollis, Oliver Ollie Taylor, Thomas Harden, Poe Black, EJ Boykin, Taya Ashton, Shai Vanderpump, Tierra Marie Lewis, Miss Coco, Pooh Johnson, Desiah Monet, Brianna Hamilton, Pierre LaPrie Cartier, Mel Groves, Royal Poetical Stars, Zoella Zoe Rose Martinez, Joe Acker, Jesse Hart, Ricky Altamuro, Marquisha Lawrence, and Jenny DeLeon. HRC also tracks additional concerning deaths of transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. Many factors lead to this violence. Anti transgender stigma can lead to the denial of opportunities in society, such as employment discrimination and exclusion from healthcare, as well as to increased risk factors such as poverty and homelessness. The combination of these factors, which are often exacerbated by racism and sexism, can lead to an increased risk of fatal violence. Although there are some existing legal protections for transgender and gender nonconforming people such as the Violence Against Women Act, Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, the decision in Bostock versus Clayton County Georgia, as well as various state and local laws, we still lack explicit federal protections against discrimination for LGBTQ+ people and pervasive stigma makes lived equality far out of reach even in lgbtq plus inclusive regions gabe with transgender day of remembrance upon us i'm wondering have you seen any moves this year that gives you hope that this continuing trend of increased violence against trans people can be stopped anytime soon
0: um sadly not i mean i do i remember every november I hear the memorials. I hear stuff going on. I remember in San Antonio uh when I used to live there. They used to put shoes on city hall and kind of like put the names of everyone who, who passed away the year this year. um I think it's crazy that I guess stuff like this gets overshadowed, one because it's primarily um you know marginalized people and then people of color add that onto it, and also. You know, with the pandemic and stuff going on, it's kind of weird that people have kind kind of forgotten about taking care of each other, and focused like on working as a community to come together. Because this is crazy that it's the most murders that have happened since they've been collecting this data. And well, it's it's
1: interesting, right? Because like every year is the most. Like it gets it's more here. And, yeah, like... and part of it, I do think, is um, frankly better reporting of these crimes you know is is leading to higher looking numbers but there's no denying that the trend of violence um is bad and getting worse
0: no yeah totally and it's you know we we hear about stuff locally uh you know people that have been attacked around town and stuff like that and it's just it's kind of uh i mean i I don't know what we can do or what we should do but instead you know i know it's great that we're bringing these up and actually bringing kind of like this information out to the forefront and saying, Hey, this is a problem. We need to focus on it, but how do we do it even more to get, you know, officials interested in, in what's going on. And, you know, you get your local governments, even like national government talking about it and saying, Hey, this is a problem, especially in the United States, like this is a problem going on.
1: Look, the lack of federal, You know protection for lgbtq plus people is a huge problem but i think the reality when it comes to um this kind of violence is you it's it starts local and you have to start local so you know people have to start showing up at town halls going to community meetings um you know you need to write letters go stand outside the police chief's door um, contact your district attorney, make sure they know that you want them to be prosecuting these kind of crimes and taking them very seriously. Um, you know you got to pay attention to who's running for district attorney or who's running for sheriff in your area and make sure that you're electing people who take this kind of crime seriously and the kind of people who are going to work hard to protect the marginalized of the marginalized right I mean. These are the most marginalized people, um, and it is, I think, often, unfortunately, um, a segment of the population that gets disregarded. And so I think that's all you can do, right, is whether you start your own community meeting or find a community meeting to go to and raise your hand and bring the topic up, you got to get involved at the local level and make sure that your local whoever is enforcing crime and whoever is investigating crime um in your local area are taking these things very seriously and and um and also you know say the names make sh- don't forget these humans that are the victims of this violence we have to continue to uh recognize and honor their humanity
0: yeah and also um Like one of the things I I was watching the news last night, like here locally in DC, there's an uptick in attacks in neighborhoods. And, you know, uh, primarily there's groups of, I don't know what's going on right now, but there's groups of people who are attacking women in town or, you know, people who identify as women. Um, And the communities are now coming together and being like, hey, we gotta be careful, you know, patrol our streets and make sure that we know what's going on. And it's just kind of like one of those things too. Like when you see something going on, I mean, I know you don't want to get involved even if you hear something, but call the police, do something. Don't just stand there and walk away or just be like, oh, it doesn't involve me. You know, if you see someone who's being harassed, you see something that doesn't look right, um, as safely as you can, try to stop, you know, something from becoming worse.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, and putting aside coming upon a dangerous situation or something else, the other thing you can do is, just in your day to day life, show respect for trans and gender non conforming humans because that's what's really at the at the root of all of this is that there is a fundamental lack of respect for the humanity of these individuals in our entire community and society at large so you know if you're a, if you're a cisgender person but you can put your pronouns out there, that might make it easier for you know another person to put their pronouns out there and Making sure you respect people's pronouns, um, try to go to places that make it a priority to have gender neutral bathrooms or you know safe spaces for marginalized people. Make sure that you're going and spending your dollars in businesses that are um, you know inclusive and welcoming to different parts of the community go- jo- you know invite. Make sure that gender nonconforming and trans people are feel comfortable joining your sports team or joining your marching band or whatever it is that you do. You know, in every area of your place, of your life, make sure that you're living your life as a person who is championing inclusivity and equality and trying to spread that everywhere because that's how you change um, the underlying feelings that are leading to this systemic violence.
0: Oh yeah, totally. And it's like little things you can do every day just to make sure that uh, one, also check yourself. Uh-huh. I have to check myself too. Like when I say things, I'm like, oh, okay, should I be saying this? Uh, probably not. Maybe yes or no. Cause it might seem fine for me, but it might be kind of, you know, offensive to someone or might, you know, put someone, not make them feel, you know, hundred percent about how they are. Um, but even like little things, like you would think that people would freak out about stuff. Like I remember one time when I was uh, working at the local courthouse, um, when someone came in and was like, really, they're, they're coming into court. First off, you're very stressed out because you're coming into court. Second off, uh, they were worried because um, they decided they wanted to use female pronouns. And I was like, okay, cool. So I just slipped a note to the judge. And I was like, this individual prefers female pronouns. The judge was totally cool with it. Was like, okay, you're fine. sure. Thank you. And even said, thank you for letting me know. Now I know, and I will address you as you want to be addressed. Cool. And that just changed. You could tell, like, that changed the mood in the courtroom. It changed the mood with the individual. They were like, okay, cool. I am okay to tell my story, tell what happened to me, and, you know, I feel supported, not like, not being looked upon, you know, negatively. So you never know when something just like using the the correct pronouns um, can change someone's day and their mood. 100%. Every little thing helps. All right. So, what is going on in sports?
1: All right. In sports, this week was MLB awards week, the most exciting week for baseball players. No, I don't know. (laughs) Probably not. I guess most baseball players would prefer playing in the World Series. But hey,
0: the All Star. All right.
1: So, first on the list is the MVP award. I gotta tell you, this is a in a somewhat bizarre turn of events. The so-called MVPs this year did not even make the playoffs. I think that means that the MVP award has really been morphed into the best player award, which I suppose is fine. But why can't we have both? Why can't we have a baseball player of the year award and an MVP award? Because I think those should be fundamentally different things. But I digress. Back to awards week in the in the National League, your MVP is drumroll please Bryce Harper of the Philadelphia Phillies. Want wah. Harper got three hundred and forty eight votes, including seventeen of the first place votes. He beat out Juan Soto of the Nationals, who earned two hundred and seventy four votes, six first place votes. Fernando Tatis Jr. of the Padres, who had two hundred forty four votes and two first place votes. Brandon Crawford of the Giants with 213 votes for first place, and Trey Turner, who played this year with both the Nationals and the Dodgers, earned 185 votes, including one first place vote. Pretty tight race. In the American League, your MVP is Shohei Otani of the Angels. Otani ran away with it. He got 420 votes, including all 30 of the first place votes. He beat out Vladimir Guerrero Jr. of the Blue Jays, who got 269 votes, Marcus Seaman of the Blue Jays with 232 votes, Aaron Judge of the Yankees with 171 votes, and Carlos Correa of the Houston Astros, who got 163 votes. Next up, the Cy Young Award. The Cy Young Award is awarded to the Best Pitcher. This year, the NL Cy Young winner is Corbin Burns of the Brewers, who earned 151 votes and beat out Zach Wheeler of the Phillies, who got 141, Max Scherzer, who played with both the Nationals and Dodgers and earned 113, and Walker Buehler of the Dodgers, who got 70 votes. In the AL, you have Robbie Ray of the Blue Jays, running away with the Cy Young with 207 votes and 29 of the 31st place votes. He beat out Garrett Cole of the Yankees who earned 123 votes and the one first place vote that didn't go to Ray. Lance Lynn of the White Sox who got 48 votes. Nathan Ivaldi of the Red Sox with 41 votes and Carlos Rodon of the White Sox who earned 34 votes. Next up, Rookie of the Year. In the National League, your winner is Jonathan India of the Reds. He also ran away with his race with 148 votes and 29 of the 30 first-place votes. The first-place vote went to the runner-up Trevor Rogers of the Marlins and the other finalists Dylan Carlson of the Cardinals, Patrick Wisdom of the Cubs, and Ian Anderson of the Braves got very few votes apiece. In the American League, the race was, was not much closer. Randy Arizonera of the Rays took 124 votes, including 22 of the 31st place votes to beat out Luis Garcia of the Astros, Wander Franco of the Rays, Adolis Garcia of the Rangers, and Emmanuel Clase of the Indians. And finally, we have Manager of the Year. In the NL, the winner was Gabe Kapler as the resounding winner, earning 143 votes and 28 of the 31st place votes And in the American League, the winner was Kevin Cash of the Rays. So, Gabe, do you think anyone got robbed this year? And do you agree with me that we need a Best Player Award so the MVP award can go back to being awarded to somebody who at least makes the playoffs?
0: (laughs) Definitely. I'm like, boo, Bryce Harper. (laughs) I still say that the best rookie of the year of all time was Henry... uh, Rowan Gartner from the uh, Chicago Cubs. He's forever the rookie of the year. Come on. (laughs) That's not a great movie, but. Henry is the
1: best. Oh, (laughs) my. Well, I thought you'd be happy. I thought you'd be happy that Gabe Kapler was the final manager of the year.
0: Yeah, I'm actually really happy about that. Actually, I remember seeing him when I was in high school and he was playing for the Red Sox. Oh. We were at a game up in like. Ar- was it? It's Arlington. Yeah, outside of Dallas. So like I remember we were on a band trip and we went to go see uh the Rangers play against the Red Sox. And I was the only one there in my little Red Sox hat, so I was very excited.
1: Well now um, he's a now he's a Texas man yeah. at heart,
0: right? But no, it's kind of I I guess what
1: Is he not loved by the people of Texas?
0: He is loved by the people of Texas. Um, yeah. I don't
1: know. I um you know, Otani, the that pitcher from the Angles, from the Angels, uh, yeah, from yeah, the yeah. Angels who does everything is like <laughs> pretty fucking special. So I thought that was pretty awesome. Um that's a guy who deserves a best player of the year award. But in all honesty, am I the only one who thinks that an MVP, you cannot be that valuable to your team if your team doesn't even make the playoffs?
0: If you don't even make it, like, yeah, well, you're, <laughs> great, you won some games, but <laughs> what makes you the MVP?
1: Right. Like, I get that you, you know, Bryce Harper might have had the best stats of the year. So you had the best season of any baseball player in the National League, but you still played for the fucking Phillies. So how valuable could you possibly be? (laughs) Like, what a mess. I don't know. I don't like it. I think we should, they should just come up with another award so that you can have like a player of the year and also an MVP. Uh, Cause like an MVP this year, you know, should have been probably. somebody who played for like the Devil Rays, which I don't think anybody's going to deny that Bryce Harper had a monster year this year. His numbers were through the roof, but so what if your team isn't even 500? <laughs> like yeah. what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> so I don't know. I think it should be two separate awards.
0: <laughs> Player of the year. And yeah. I mean, be- why not? We have a
1: Cy Young, which is not called the most valuable pitcher right it's the best pitcher of the year so why can't you have a player of the year and then also a most valuable
0: player that's right let's write to
1: or maybe do really something like stuff. what they do in the mvp where you have a season mvp and then have a playoff mvp, playoff MVP. Right? yeah 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 that at least so sense. that at least somebody gets focused on and gets awarded for being like an impact player as opposed to just like an overall having a great year
0: okay i agree with that let's make our own awards
1: yes what will we call them? The
0: bleachies.
1: (laughs) That's terrible. (laughs) That's really bad. But I'll definitely nominate each of us for bleachy next year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is it. I think officially I have bled this MLB season to death. I have discussed every angle of the Major League (laughs) Baseball season on this podcast. We've now gone through awards week, and that is it. We are officially putting a button on the MLB season next until up, January.
0: Next up, <laughs> pitchers do and do pitchers. training.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right.
0: So and the Mets Goodbye suck.
1: Baseball. Congratulations to everybody who won an award this week, except Bryce Harper. Um, we boo him. And also, no
0: Mets won anything. Aw
1: no Nats won anything either.
0: Yeah, I know, but still the Mets didn't win anything. So yeah, it's a, it's okay. a rebuilding year. It's a rebuilding year.
1: The only, <laughs> the only New York Met who's come close to winning anything recently is uh, Jake DeGrom, who is the back-to-back Cy Young Award winner, but this year was sidelined with an Inver. But congratulations to those of you who did win and see you all in a hundred and some odd days for pitchers and catchers.
0: I just thought of a different pitchers and catchers. So on that segue, what's going on in the world of queer in the intersection of sports and queer? All right. Besides catching and pitching.
1: <laughs> yeah, great segue for this week's topic at the intersection of sports and queer, a new framework for transgender and intersex athletes from the IOC. The International Olympic Committee announced a new framework for transgender and intersex athletes Tuesday dropping controversial policies that required competing athletes to undergo, quote, medically unnecessary procedures or treatment. In a six-page document, the IOC outlined 10 principles, which it described as grounded on the respect for internationally recognized human rights that sports competitions should follow. It also said it will no longer require athletes to undergo hormone level modifications to compete. Quote, this framework recognizes both the need to ensure that everyone, irrespective of their gender identity or sex variations, can practice sport in a safe, harassment-free environment that recognizes and respects their needs and identities, the committee said. The new framework is not legally binding and was developed following an extensive consultation with athletes, other sports organizations, and experts in the fields of human rights, law, and medicine. It comes just three months after the Tokyo Olympics, which saw the first transgender and intersex athletes compete in the game's history. Tuesday's framework replaces guidelines the IOC released in 2015, which put a limit on athletes' testosterone levels that required some of them to undergo treatments the IOC now describes as medically unnecessary. Before 2015, the IOC actually required athletes to undergo genital surgery. Gabe, what do you think about this news? Is the IOC finally moving in the right direction?
0: Um, I think so. This is interesting. It's They're finally, I guess, coming up with something that's written down so that if anybody has any questions, they're like, okay, let's look at what we uh, came up with. And I'm kind of glad that they're kind of looking at it from all aspects. They're looking at it at the human rights, civil rights, but also medical kind of view and just kind of like putting something together, writing it down kind of as a framework um for the next games because they're probably coming up like super soon I mean is this gonna folk is this gonna take place as part of Beijing or how's you know that's that's coming up in a few months like yeah I don't know. no
1: absolutely but here's the thing right so they had a policy before it was written down it was just a terrible fucking policy that yeah. that caused a lot of really good athletes to either have to sit out the games or take uh, hormone treatments to be eligible uh, based on random non-medical, non-medically, uh, related testosterone levels, right? It was nonsense. Um, this is obviously a improvement. The problem I have with it is it's described as a framework and an outline of principles, (laughs) but it's, it's all it is, is a bunch of guidelines and it doesn't actually, um, give, you know, the devil's in the details, and the devil here, I think, is going to be in how this gets implemented, because it's not a, um, it's not as clear of a policy, and so we'll have to just see how it impacts people in the next games. I mean, I hope that the application of these new guidelines will be done in such a way that um, people truly can participate and be respected regardless of gender identity and regardless of um, any of these non-medical judgments that people were making.
0: Like, do you know, does every country have to vote on this or every country's Olympic committee or it's just like, this is from IOC saying, hey, here's our stance, I guess?
1: Yeah, and it's not, like they said, it's not binding. So, like, I mean, certainly countries can have their own rules about who can compete on their teams, right? But this is just who's eligible from the IOC body, right? So, I mean, you know, the United States in theory, right, can have whatever rules it wants about who can compete on their national teams or on their Olympic teams. Um, The difference being that, if somebody on the United States team is somebody who has a testosterone level that's higher than what was in the old policy, they're no longer going to be barred by the IOC policy from being able to compete.
0: Yeah, like we were talking about like the different runners and stuff like that that have these you know, natural uh, increase in testosterone. And they, yeah, they have to take these suppressors and stuff like that. That's pretty taxing to the body and just horrible. I mean, just so they can compete and represent their country, which is crazy. Um, it's absolutely crazy. Um, I mean, it, it, it for me, it's a step in the right direction. At least they're you know updating their principles and updating what they had before because what the IOC had in the past was trash. Uh, but I also think I guess you know this probably came from Tokyo as part of like how we talked about it before. This is the gayest, you know, games that they had the most LGBTQ plus representation than any Olympic game. And a bunch of people were asking like, okay, where's the policies? What can we do to make these games more inclusive and just have the best in sport showcased?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt. Move in the right direction. Big question that lingers is how is this all going to be implemented? It's something that people need are going to need to pay attention to. Right. Because, the last thing you want is like a repeat of the nonsense that the NCAA did when they like put out a guideline that they weren't going to award a championship Habitical series games. to cities that didn't have inclusive policies. And then they went right ahead and awarded um, championships to cities that have, make it illegal for trans athletes to compete in the state. So, you know, it's all in the implementation. So we are gonna have to keep a close watch on how these new guidelines get implemented, but at least we have cause for optimism on this front with the
0: IOC. Okay, that's this week's Under the Bleachers Roundup of Things Queer, Things Sports, and Things at the Intersection of Sports and Queer. We're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna share our interview with documentary filmmaker, Liz Lindstrom. Welcome back to Under the
1: Bleachers. Today, we are joined by Liz Lindstrom. Liz is a documentary filmmaker and rugby player from the D.C. area. She's been playing rugby since 2013 and making films since 2009. In 2021, she produced Furious, a documentary about her current rugby club, the D.C. Furies, and their founding, development, and persistence through the global coronavirus pandemic. Welcome, Liz. We are so glad to have you today.
2: Glad to be here.
1: All right. Um, We have not, you are our first filmmaker. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become a filmmaker? Is it something you always wanted to do?
2: Sure. Um, Well, I guess I started getting involved in like media and film way back when, um, when I was probably like, you know, middle school, we do our like little news team kind of thing. Um, But I actually, when I went to high school, they had a television, film and television production program. It's the um, CD Hilton program down in Woodbridge, Virginia. Very cool. I got to work with these like huge production cameras that are like almost the size of me. Um, And that was more broadcast news, but it really gave me kind of like a skill set and a foundation for, you know, other types of um, film and media. So when I went to school, I went to, um, I did my bachelor's at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. They did not have a film major. They did have a film minor. So I decided when I went there, I was going to major in accounting and (laughs) minor in film. I did not surprise major in accounting. <laughs> I um, <laughs> lasted about uh, two and a half years, and when I was there, they had created a film major. So I got my film major out of the way, and then with all of my leftover time, because I thought I was going to be a, um, a business double major, I decided to um, double major in government. So that was really fun, um, and I think that you know really influenced my kind of like career path in documentary film. Um, In you know, I think film and documentaries are a way to kind of show the real things that are happening in the world and make an incredible impact on, um, I guess, general life in society.
1: That sounds about as straight of a path as anybody takes through undergrad. And so tell us then how you went from
2: graduating with your government and film degree to where you are today. Uh, So, yeah, I uh, majored at that. And then I graduated, did some freelancing, worked for a couple production companies. Right now I'm working for a production company in Alexandria, Virginia. They're really great. But before that I was doing a lot of freelancing, um, which was great in that I could work, you know, lots of different places, touch on a lot of different forms of media. Also very like Intense in like the hours that I was working, so I was working three jobs and playing rugby, um, <laughs> and then yeah, and then uh, the coronavirus pandemic hit right as I was um, filming for my documentary.
1: Awesome. So, um, what do you do at a production company? Are you editing? You're editing other people's work? Is it like commercial work or something like that?
2: Yeah. So, like I said, I've worked for at a couple different places and you know, a lot of the places um, that I was brought on as a freelancer, I was doing a little bit of everything. So I was doing, you know, a little bit of production work, like in the field, I was, you know, behind the camera, or I was like in post-production opening, you know, whatever video editing software we're using. So Adobe Premiere, Avid, um, kind of making edits there. I you know, worked at this company called Spark Media, who is really great, I actually started there as an intern. And that kind of evolved into some other opportunities. So I got to be a um, production associate on their documentary, Scattering CJ, which is about mental health and suicide prevention. Um, that then evolved, I, you know, met someone who met someone. Um, and I got to be an associate producer on another film um, called My America, that's actually done by an Italian film company. So you know lots of little opportunities turned into bigger opportunities and i've been able to grow and expand my network um and so in a lot of ways i've done a little bit of everything um and that's kind of why i felt that i was then able to start this film so well is
1: furious the first full length project of your own that you worked on
2: um yes and I, that's the other thing is, you know, I have worked on other people's full-length projects and, you know, it's been great, but this kind of, I had nobody to kind of tell me, oh, you can't put that on camera or, or you know, maybe, you know, this is a better editing style or whatever. I, you know, because I was the director and the producer and the editor and the filmmaker, I got to kind of, you know, critique myself and, you know, I I learned so much from it in a lot of different ways. So is it perfect? By no means, but you know, did I grow as a filmmaker? Absolutely. Tell us a little bit
1: more about that. You really made this film all very much on your own, right?
2: Um, As you know, I knew a little bit about producing. I knew a little bit about directing um, and I had been working for clients and doing client work, which, you know, in a lot of ways was great in helping me grow, but I had so much, I call it, um, like creative energy. Like I had a story that I wanted to tell, and I really wanted to take the time to kind of from start to finish create something that was mine. Um, and (laughs) I always joke people that if you saw me last year, I probably had twice as much hair because,
0: you know, (laughs) doing
2: everything in a project is incredibly, you know, stressful, but also incredibly rewarding. So, um, because this was a micro budget film, I, you know, filmed it myself. So I'm, I'm the one, I'm not actually in my own film because I'm filming everything. Um, I produced it. So I was You know reaching out and coordinating all of my interviews and storyboarding um i i the only two people who i hired for this were um a composer who's incredible named uh jake weston and a colorist who's you know a friend of a friend also he's great um named tony Kosak and you know other than that everything else is me so the intro credits are very short (laughs) um
1: (laughs) So you mentioned this is a micro budget
2: film. Other than your own pockets, where did that budget come from? This was um, something that the the city of Arlington, their arts program actually funded some of that. So I was able to kind of use those funds to help me kind of get started. I had a very good fundraising campaign. Um, there's a lot of alumni and um, just general friends of the Furies I guess I would say and they were really excited about this film being done. I think it turned out pretty great too. I've had a lot of um, people you know reach out to me saying it was you know really incredible to watch and the only thing that premiered was the fine cut so of course I'm in the back cringing at all of the things that I see wrong but I mean I guess that's the like development of creatives right as you get better you realize all the things you could have done instead. So, you know, probably 10 years from now, I'll think it's the worst film I ever made, but (laughs) for now it's pretty cool.
1: Well, it sounds like a labor of love.
2: Absolutely.
0: So of all the topics that you've chosen in the world, why did you decide to do it on a rugby team? Primarily your rugby team.
2: Yeah, so I felt a little bit conflicted about that, particularly because when you're going in as a filmmaker, typically you don't wanna to be too close to the subject, right? So <laughs> normally I would say, okay, this is a really neat story. I'm gonna cover it from an objective or impartial kind of approach. Um, obviously that's very tricky because it's my own rugby club. Um, but at the same time, you know, a lot of things I think developed over the course. It's not like I've been on the club for you know, 25, 30, 40 years, right? Um, So I joined the Furies in, I think it was 2017 or 2018, Um, and one of the things that that club does a lot um, is they talk about, you know, this is our legacy, and, like, we have done so much in the Women's Premier League, and we've done so much for the development of select sides, and, you know, some of the alumni we've had were on the USA Eagles in the nineties and two thousands. Um, and I think coming in as a rookie, I didn't really know where to go to for that kind of cool information. Um, so for me, I guess the short answer to your question, you know, I came into this club that had an outstanding history. I was dying to do a feature film on women's rugby, because I think it's a sport that is undervalued underrated and underappreciated. Um, And, you know, I really wanted to test what I could do as a filmmaker and what better way to do that than to be constantly excited by the thing that you're filming about.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, When you first set out to to make the film, what was your vision? What did you think the film was going to be about?
2: Yeah, so I actually, you know, I didn't just kind of Wake up one day and said, You know, this is exactly what the film's going to be about. It's, you know, part of the beauty of documentaries, it's how it develops over this period. And the way that I like to edit and the way that I've kind of learned to edit documentaries is 90% of it, 90% of the storyboarding is done in post production, which a lot of people don't like to do, um, particularly because they spend so much time in research and storyboarding, but you can't predict what's going to happen on the camera, right, when you're filming live events. Um, And you can't predict the words that people are gonna say in an interview.
1: Did you have, even if it was just broad strokes, like a a vision for what the film was gonna be about?
2: Yes, I did, so, and I think in some ways it kind of did turn out like that. Um, I knew, you know, how do you cover the entire 40 plus year history of this club in, you know, 70 minutes, right? Uh, my vision was to do a past, present, future kind of timeline. Um, So the past, you know, some of the events that were going on in the late 70s, you know, what obstacles um, women faced in the Furies founding, and, you know, look at other women's clubs and what they did in the 70s as well. Um, Presently, I wanted to examine, you know, what the present struck because when i started filming this the furious had just been relegated out of the wpl um which was like huge news like and if you know anything about the wpl and women's rugby it's huge news you know we were um one of the founding clubs in the women's premier league which is you know the highest level that you can play at before the national team um this was going to be our first season in division one rugby in since 2009 um so i think there were some big events coming that i really wanted to kind of shape and capture. That third component um, though, was going to be about the future. And um, every year, the Furies host this uh, rugby tournament called Ruggerfest. And it's one of the largest, if not the largest um, women's rugby tournaments in the country. Um, so this year we were, and I was also weirdly Ruggerfest coordinator. So I knew a lot about, <laughs> you know, who was coming and all that. But, um, you know, we were set to have 40 teams from all over the country, come out for this tournament and you know when we started the first ruggerfest it was four teams on the national mall and you know in 40 years we've grown that to 40 plus teams and we were going to have our first ever middle school bracket like middle school girls are playing rugby now which i think is just so <laughs> incredible um and it's you know it's not just all of these club teams you have everywhere from like WPL and division 1 clubs down to Middle school clubs. Um, and so it's really inspiring. And, you know, before I even was on the Furies, I went to Ruggerfest um, as a college player at the College of Women Mary. And it was just really inspiring to see women in their 30s and 40s, right? Still playing this. I know you're looking at me at question marks. I mean, there. I 40s. mean, I played
1: rugby in my 40s. So watch yourself.
2: <laughs> no, I'm saying kicking ass, right? Like, I think there's this mentality in collegiate sports specifically, right? Like, oh no, after 25, right? It's all downhill. My career's over. Right, like if you wanna, I had um, two ACL tears in college and I had my doctor tell me that if I ever wanted to live like a normal life, I should stop playing contact sports. And so I tore my second ACL and I was devastated. I'm, you know, freshly 21, I was like, my rugby career is over and now I'm like laughing at my old self. I actually just tore my third one, um, which is, you know, not ideal, but, um, it's funny cause you know, I'm 25, almost 26 now. And I'm like, I still have such a long rugby career ahead of me, even if I were to take, you know, two years off, because there is room in the sport for people who want to be here. Um, and there's so many different levels and ways you can contribute to the game, um, I think that is something that isn't really, you know, talked about. And so I guess, you know, the third part of my film <laughs> instead of coronavirus was going to be how the Furies over the last year and, you know, maybe in the next 40 years will be continuing to grow um, this sport for, you know, youth basically who did not have these opportunities, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago.
0: Cool. So what were, what do you think are the best experiences you had making this film, And what were the greatest challenges besides, you know, the pandemic?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Besides, you know, the global pandemic. Um, So, well, I will say really quick that the pandemic, while it was challenging to like rewrite my story, it was kind of cool because it presented me with the opportunity to like, you know, travel. So something that was really cool for me was, you know, I was waiting for all of these, um, Players and alumni from outside of the D.C. area to fly back for Ruggerfest, so I can interview them here. Um, I got the opportunity to fly out to Duluth, Minnesota, and meet Pat Sterner, who's one of our founders, um, and you know, be in her home and and see you know albums that she had and and old Fury stuff that she had, and um, that was really incredible. And I wouldn't have gotten to do that if we were you know uh, still you know working in the offices and stuff. Um, in terms of biggest, uh, or I guess like most exciting, my favorite things that happened, um, I would say uh, it was really cool to, because I've been on the sidelines, you know, before filming games, but most of the time you're filming, your camera's pointed towards um, the field, right? You're interested in gameplay. You're interested in what's happening. There were so many scenes that were happening on the sidelines that I never even thought to look at until I was behind the lens of a camera. For example, there's this really incredible um, scene in the film with Carrie Stancil, who, when the time I was filming this, she was a captain for our 15s team. And our first game back, she is so so bad, (laughs) she's so cool. So she comes onto the field, 20 minutes into the game, breaks her nose, like completely, whatever. So I'm filming the sideline, just their reaction. And I hear, Hey, Carrie, are you okay? Do you need anything? And she goes, yeah, I need a tampon for my nose. I think it's broken. And she like walks on and then gets, is getting looked at by the trainer. I'm sitting here with a camera in my hands. Like, how do I film this without being super intrusive? Like, you know, so she's framed in the very, very corner where I look like I'm not filming her, but I totally am. Um, and I asked her permission, obviously to use this, but it's this very cool scene where she, you know, breaks her nose. And then, you know, another player of ours, Lauren Glover is yelling at our coach and and goes, Hey, like how much time for a blood meaning in rugby, there's something called a blood sub where you only have about, you know, 10 minutes, seven minutes to patch up your bloody self. And before you can go on the field or else it counts as a full sub, so. And in in no other sport that I've ever seen has had that. Um, Otherwise in rugby, once you come off, you're done. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's, she broke her nose, she's plugging it up. um, And he goes, Oh, you know, we have seven minutes And and she goes, Oh, perfect. Seven minutes, plenty of time. And she plugs up her nose and she goes back in the game and she plays the rest of the game with a broken nose and had to like get it fixed or whatever. But you know, and then at the end of the game, she walks off and her, you know, son is there and they're, she He's just like, wow, mom, like you did so good. And I'm like, this is so incredible. And, you know, I see this every day, every time, you know, I come out on the pitch, there's these incredible, fierce women who are, you know, putting their bodies on the line for nothing more than the love of the game. Um, and, you know, people who are really not here to see this need to see this. Um, so that was, you know, there was a lot of experiences like that. And I was really happy that I was able to capture those. Um, I would have loved to capture more. So, obviously,
1: you spent the last year and more of your life making a documentary about sports and a sports club. Why do you think it's important that, why do you think there are so many movies about sports and about sports teams? And why do you think these stories are so compelling and important to tell?
2: Yeah. So, you sent me that question, and I actually, had a conflicting, I guess, answer in response to that. Because while yes, I do this, I do think this is obviously a sports film and it's incredibly moving. I think, you know, the challenges that this club faces and that women's clubs across the country face are so vastly different than, you know, sports documentaries on the whole. Um, I, you know, have worked for a production company that did a documentary on Kevin Durant and his kind of you know, growing up in—I think it was like in Baltimore or in the like Prince George County, I think. Um, you know, there are all-star NBA players who have you know million-dollar documentaries done on their lives and their upbringing to be the best of the best of the best, and those are incredible. And you know, teams that won the 1998 World Championships, whatever—very common in like sports documentary is a whole genre. And I think it's because sports are something that, you know, a lot of people care about. People care about, you know, camaraderie, people care about hard work and overcoming obstacles and, you know, want to root for the underdog. I think this film is so incredibly different in a lot of ways, particularly because who, of who is being featured, right? Like I can't think of off the top of my head A documentary that focused on a women's team other than the like 1999 World Cup team for um, the U.S. women's national team. And I think that says a lot. I think, you know, there's a lot of sports films out there. Not all of them are focused on women. Not all of them are focused on like queer rugby players. Right. Like not all of them kind of focus on niche sports. That's the other thing. Um, So I think this is, you know, sport documentaries are incredibly important to tell for a lot of reasons, but I think most importantly, it's important to still tell stories where you're intentional about who is featured, right? Um, One of the things that was important for me in filming this was to make sure I had a huge diverse selection of furies, right? Old furies, new theories, um, legendary kind of folks. Um, also a diversity of races, a diversity of gender identities. The other thing is, you know, there's obviously tons of diversity in the people that I picked for my film. That's also not the thing that they're being interviewed about, right? Like I'm not, you know, talking to joe and joss saying like as you know lesbians how do you feel about blah 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 because it's not the issue it's not the reason i'm interviewing them you know it just happens to be a common theme in the women's rugby community is that you know we're incredibly diverse um we're incredibly you know welcoming that's
0: cool yeah because i mean I started playing rugby two years, three years ago. And yeah, it's a very diverse community. And that's one thing that I love about it is that it's a sport for everyone and everyone has a story to tell. So that's really cool that you get to capture, you know, your local's women's team and get to capture this moment in history because who knows when the next pandemic might come. But, uh, you know, it's just something cool to like capture that part of what's going on in this part of the world, I guess. Uh, So what's the status of furious? Is it complete? When can we, when are we going to be able to see it?
2: Yeah. So furious is in its last two weeks. It's getting its last round of color. It's getting its last round of music. You know, the transitions are getting cleaned up a bit. So, you know, it's really, really close to being finished. It's currently being submitted to um, festivals. And, you know, once I know which festivals it's been accepted to, I will definitely let you know, um, they will be you know us festivals based off just like the licensing that i have for music and stuff um but you know i don't really have a strong um focus i'm going to be submitting to documentary festivals you know lgbtq festivals sports festivals you know there's lots of different uh i guess specific festival criteria uh first-time filmmakers low budget I'm just going to kind of put this wherever. And I think this is a story that will impact a lot of different communities.
1: Liz, this has been delightful. I want to thank you for um, taking the time to talk to us today. Before I let you go, I want to ask you is there a piece of advice that you got along the way that sticks with you, resonates with you, or any of your own advice that you would want to share with aspiring filmmakers that might be listening?
2: I do. I have a story that goes along with it. If you'd like to hear that.
1: Of course.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love, I tell this story often. Um, So one of the best creative classes I took in college was a fundamentals of playwriting class. So I took a screenwriting class. I took production classes. I also took theater classes. Um, And it's orientation day. First, you know, first day ever uh it's i think i'm a sophomore or a junior in college at this point it's you know we walk into the classroom we're in the theater hall so everybody's in like jeans and a t-shirt our professor walks in he's in a full suit and tie okay full suit and tie and you know he walks into the chalkboard writes you know theater 317 he goes this is theater 317 if you're in the wrong class please leave and we're all looking around. And there's like 15 of us. And we're like, nope, we're we're supposed to be here. He goes, okay. So he shuts the door. We're expecting roll call or like, you know, here's orientation. Here's the syllabus. He just starts talking. Or he goes, okay, you wake up and you're in a coma. You know, and blah 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 blah. You wake up, you're in a coma. You have this injury to your, you know, right ankle. You've bruised your left tibia. You've dislocated. Your elbow, your pelvis is broken. Three ribs are broken. You know, blah blah. He lists all of these injuries. The reason you got this way is because you are rounding confusion corner at eighty miles an hour. You decided to drink too much on blowout and you T-boned a minivan. Um, In the passenger side was uh, an eleven-year-old girl. She's now dead. In the driver's side was her mom, eight months pregnant, lost the baby. She's also in a coma. Read a monologue. Go. And so we're freaking (laughs) out. We're like scurrying up our pencils and paper. And you know, he's, I think he said, you have five minutes to write a monologue. He didn't tell us if we were being graded. He didn't tell us anything. So we're like, okay, you know, we're frantic. I'm like, what did I get myself into? The entire time he's pacing up and down the room. Like you have three minutes left. You have one minute left. I was like, what did I get myself into? This is awful. So we finish writing, you know, this is the worst thing I've ever written in my entire (laughs) life. And, you know, he goes, pencils down. We're all like, you know, sweating, you know, breathing heavily. He goes, Congratulations, you've just vomited. And I was like, What the hell does that mean? (laughs) He says, There's no such thing as writer's block, there's only the fear to vomit, meaning you can always create something, you can always find something to talk about or to write about, the only time you're ever stuck is because you're worried about doing something poorly. So when you think about, you know, making a film, or, you know, writing a screenplay, or writing a short story, all of the mental block that you're facing is just because of your fear of failing, or fear of writing or doing something poorly. But You're never gonna get better unless you just write. Like, you just have to get started. Just pick up the camera. Yes, that's the only way you're gonna grow is by doing. And that I think has been my mentality. And that was one of the reasons that I made this film at all. You know, I was constantly like, oh, I have to, you know, work this job and then this job and then this job and then get this, you know, certification and, you know, Before I can even think about doing my own film. And the reality is, you can do it anytime you damn well please. You know, (laughs) you can figure it out along the way. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you go in, you know, being realistic about what your expectations are. Think about why are you creating this? What is it for? Um, you know, for this film, I had no intention of getting funded for it at all. My intention was to create something you know, and maybe submit it to festivals. And I already did that, like that's already done. The bonus was it got funded. I got to have, you know, um, I had donations from, I think over like 15 states in the United States um, of people who, you know, wanted to see this film, wanted to be a part of this film. Um, I had outstanding interviews and a lot of things that are just worthwhile. So exceeded my expectations in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, I think if I had hesitated or worried about whether it was going to be any good, I wouldn't have made it because I guess doubt would have crept in. Um, so my advice to filmmakers is just create to create, and you're going to make some bad stuff before you make some good stuff (laughs) and that's okay
1: all right well that i think is a great piece of advice for everybody whether you're a filmmaker or not sometimes you just have to dive in and get started if you want to get anywhere
2: absolutely
1: all right well liz again thank you so much for joining us i hope that you will soon be announcing your next amazing rugby film or whatever (laughs) this film you decide to make i i loved uh rough cut of furious that i saw and i can't wait to see what you do next but thanks again and i hope we get to talk to you again soon
2: yeah me too thanks for having me
1: all right take care
0: thanks for listening to this episode of under the bleachers under the bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of team dc for more information about team dc please visit www.teamdc.org
1: We want to give credit to ralph elston for the design of our logo also our music is provided by dc's different drummers marching band and was composed by travis gettinger you can always find under the bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all major podcast apps including apple google spotify iheartradio and stitcher please remember to rate review and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend who might enjoy listening
0: Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC board members Laura Frere and Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and participants of Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.